You're listening to Leveling Up, where we'll show you how to win at the game of life and business. It's time to power up your skills through life gamification with your host, Eric Sue. What is Carrot and where do you want to take it in the next 10 years? With my co-founder, Will, we're building an entire financial system for creators. So everyone today makes money through content, including yourself. And it's not just, oh, I'm a YouTuber, I make videos. There are a lot of business people who realize the way to do marketing is by creating your own videos. Now, the issue is the whole financial ecosystem doesn't understand this business model. So we have a lot of creators, YouTubers who are making millions of dollars. They walk into a bank. They can't even get a business bank account or a business credit card or say that they do, but the limits are really low. We just talked a bit about Alexandra Botez, who's a top chess streamer and creator who makes over seven figures. She was rejected for a business credit card multiple times because they just had literally no idea what she's doing. So our vision is we build an ecosystem with bank accounts, credit, payments, everything around incorporating your business, running it, getting access to credit and mortgages. We make it easy for you because we understand what a normal bank doesn't. Mm. And... You guys also, I mean, let, let's go with Alexandra Botez. So when she was getting rejected, did she have millions and millions of subs already? Was she making good money already? Yeah, she already was doing really well financially. Another issue, though, in the credit underwriting system today is you either have built up your FICO, your personal credit history, which doesn't actually care so much about how much money you're making or how much you've saved, or you have years of business history and the banks feel comfortable trusting you. If you don't have either one of those, which many creators and creative businesses don't have, you actually could be making seven figures and still not getting access to very basic credit cards. Got it. And so what are you what are you hooking with? Because I remember reading about this. Uh, maybe it was like TechCrunch or maybe it was something else. But it's like, yeah, I one, the credit scores are broken. Yeah. How are you guys redefining it? And what are you guys integrating with? The existing FICO credit scoring system, which, by the way, started off in like the 1950s by these two dudes named Fair and Isaac. They made like the Fair and Isaacs Corporation. That's what the acronym FICO actually came from initially. It's primarily based on how much debt have you taken up before and have you paid it back? Now, there's so many people who've never taken out debt. They've never taken credit out because they didn't know that they should. They were worried about it. If you're following Dave Ramsey, right? Mm -hmm. You're like, oh, I don't want to even touch that stuff. Yep. When in reality, having a little bit of leverage can actually really help your business. So a much smarter way to underwrite is by looking at, well, how is your business doing? How much are you making? How much are you spending? How much do you have on hand? And there's been a few different companies in addition to ourselves that are looking more at essentially cash flow-based underwriting. And then what we do is we add a layer on top of that where we also look at what's the leading indicator to your cash flow as a social media business. It's your socials. So we do look at, hey, if you're a YouTuber, how many subscribers do you have? What's your engagement? How many videos are you putting out? And so forth. Got it. And so I want to come back to the business, but I, there's some interesting things you guys are doing from like a distribution standpoint. So you guys have a carrot podcast where you're bringing creators on. So what, like, what is the strategy right now beyond the podcast? Like what does the marketing stack look like? So whenever you're building a fintech business, which essentially is the business of storing or moving money around for somebody, there's always three things you have to think about. The first one is acquisition. How are you getting your customers? The second is underwriting. How well are you pricing them? And the third is what's your cost of capital? How cheaply can you get the money needed to lend out or float payments? 
Now, a lot of people tend to focus on the cost of capital or the underwriting model, but people often forget acquisition is still by far the most important thing. And you might have noticed over the past couple of years, there have been so many vertically focused financial technology plays. So for example, Brex and Ramp started with venture-backed startups, or Nova Credit started with immigrants. You also have uh, Step started with teenagers. Mm. The realization is if you vertically focus on a specific market, you not only might win, for example, in underwriting, because you understand that population better than anyone else, you win from an acquisition POV, because you become the default choice for them to hey, maybe get their first bank account or get their first credit card, and then you cross-sell them on all the other needs that they might have. Now, for ourselves, we're focused on creators. So we're in a unique spot where if we do a good job serving our clients, they should share us naturally because that's their job. So we don't do paid influencer activations. We focus on what are the things we can do that make your life so delightful that you want to share it. Now, you've mentioned podcasts. It's one great example. We were on a podcast where we talked to creators and have them highlight the personal sides of their journeys because business and personal go together. They want to reshare those clips because they're really good. We featured creators on billboards, which they'll go fly out and take a photo of it because it highlights them as legitimate people and celebrities. We'll go and send creators very custom cool cards because it, again, becomes something to flex and show off. So that's how we think about getting that organic marketing in place. Got it. And what kind of outcomes have you seen from doing these, this podcast, for example? I think the number one piece is trust, especially with helping build financial products for creators. We're not really focused on, hey, are we the best card or bank account for you relative to a competitor, we're focused on, are you aware why you need to care about these things in the first place? We work with so many creators who don't even know why mm. they should have a credit card or that they should even be paying taxes. <laughs> like I've met creators, I have years of back taxes and they're like, oh yeah, like the IRS is like freezing my bank accounts. Like, is this an issue? Because they're so focused on yeah. the content side. <laughs> and so the main task there is actually just to bring them in the door and say, hey, from somebody you trust, you should care about this. So what's really good about the podcast is when you see me do a podcast, for example, with Graham Stephan, who not only is a client of ours, but also an angel investor, you see in this very tangible, visceral way, oh, like Graham cares enough to come onto this pod with Eric from Carrot. And if Graham cares, maybe I should care. And maybe that becomes the first stepping stone to hey, maybe as a creator, I do need to care about my financials. And if I'm going to care about them, maybe care is a good option. Got it. And how, I mean, I think like, I feel like the flywheel has been building for a while. And then, you know, these larger creators are telling these other ones, but how did you get like the first big creator? I think you DM oh, somebody, it was right? Hard, yeah. man. It was really hard. So my background, everyone assumes I used to work at Instagram. I helped build Instagram live. People think, oh, you used to work at Instagram. It was so easy for you to get on your initial creators because you must have known them already. They forget when you work at a corporation, we are all cogs in the machine. And even though I was a product manager, I was so many layers removed from actually talking to creators. That's one of the reasons why I quit. I was like, my job is to help creators and businesses and if I want to just talk to one, I have to go to my product marketing manager, to my community person, to my research person, because everyone's so specialized. And I'm like, I just want to go to VidCon directly and talk with them one-on-one. -on -one. And I wasn't able to. So when we started Carrot, we said, okay, we want to help creators with their finances and business. 
And I didn't really have many contacts from my work at Instagram because it was so siloed out. So to your point, a lot of it was initially just cold DMing, cold messaging, cold hustling. For instance, one of our very first clients was ZHC, who is a top creator focused on art. And he has, I think, over 20 million subscribers. When he joined Carrot, there were actually three different avenues that I was in contact with him. So the first one, I'd followed his content. I had been cold emailing him for a while. And the second was through a former colleague at McKinsey. She introduced me to an angel who introduced me to another angel who introduced me to a talent manager. (laughs) This is like three layers removed that five months from me meeting him, ended up becoming the talent manager for ZHC. So path number one, I was cold emailing ZHC. Path number two, I had gone to know this talent manager that ZHC ended up signing with. And number three, the CEO of the talent agency that the agent had just joined, that the creator had just signed with, I had met him at Vid Summit. I didn't even have a badge. This was like in 2019. I just walked in. Nobody noticed. Just found him, approached him cold, followed up and met him in Texas a few months later and just got to know him. And so through three different avenues, he's been emailing the creator, been emailing his agent, had been emailing the CEO of the agency. There's enough credibility where when he actually had the need because he didn't have high enough limits on his credit card just to support the working capital of his channel mm-hmm. because everything he made from one video he'd put into the next and if you don't have high limits it actually slows down the rate of your production it was like oh eric from carrot might be helpful and i jumped on a call and i personally walked him through all of it and they were like yeah this makes sense that they've been clients for years now kind of it's almost like you're building this i don't know what you guys would call yourself but it seems like a financial ecosystem for creators Yeah, we want to be your first business credit card. We want to be the people who help you set up your bank account to incorporate to do your taxes. And to your previous question, it all starts initially just by being a human being who's going out and meeting them. And that's how you start the flywheel, where then you work with them and naturally work with them produces content and referrals that bring in other people. Got it. How many creators do you have on your cap table? I think... Through the creators directly, or some of them have invested as part of the agencies they're in, like over 70. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's a lot. And it's across like every different type of creator, right? In the Twitch space, we have like Ludwig, Moist Critical, Alex Botez. Uh, in the finance space, we have Graham Stephan, Nate O'Brien, Charlie Chang. In the travel space, we have Sam Colder. In the food space, we have Nick DiGiovanni. It's really kind of like a who's who of folks who. We were very upfront with them. In building a venture-backed business, it is extremely risky. Like, yes, there's the chance that we become a multi-billion dollar company, but it's low. And we bring in creators who are like, look, if you're in a state where for you, the reward is more interesting than the risk, and you're aware that this might not turn out well for you financially, but you still want to come along for the journey and support us, brilliant. We'd love to have you come in with a very small check. Mm. Got it. Love that. And small check, I'm assuming like anywhere from 25 to 250. Ideally, even less. Okay. Because from our perspective, the majority of the round has already been filled by venture capitalists who have funds of millions, billions of dollars that they're deploying from their LPs. When we're bringing in angels, the money isn't actually valuable. It's the expertise, the relationship. And then especially with creators, we want to keep the amount as small as possible because we know it's risky and we never want to imperil the relationship if it doesn't work out. So from my perspective, I'm trying to bring on people for the smallest check possible 
that still builds that relationship. So, I mean, with your business, you have a ton of data. I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to figure out everything's pattern recognition, right? So what kind of patterns, what kind of interesting data can you share in terms of creator behavior? Yeah, so first, you're right. We're actually a data play. A lot of people don't realize that. They ask us, how do you make money? For example, on our credit card, we don't charge fees. And people are like, well, what's the catch? The catch is, number one, I'm getting your financial and social data and using that to build an underwriting model. And number two, with that data and underwriting model, I believe I'm going to be able to develop other financial products that I can cross sell to you because you're already using my first product. So first, like good insight. A lot of people don't actually realize that. Second, so there's like a few, I'd say, for instance, the most trustworthy creators are the ones that are supported not by brand deals, which are very spiky, but by a direct connection to their community via things like Twitch, where there's like a monthly subscription or Patreon or like their own email list where they've set up their own paywalls. Those creators by far are the most stable and secure because you're not dependent on a platform, right? Like for AdSense, mm. where the algorithm could, oh, I don't know, maybe it helps you, maybe it doesn't. You're not dependent on, as I said, brand deals, which really some months you might be making like six figures and some months you might be making almost none. You have a, it's almost SaaS-like, where you have a constant base of essentially clients who are paying you every month on a recurring basis. By far, those are the easiest and most secure creators to underwrite. I think the second thing that we've learned is you have to learn to underwrite creators who you actually aren't necessarily sure are good for it. Because think about building an underwrite model. If you only underwrite the people who you assume are amazing, you're simply hard-coding your own assumptions. You're not learning. You have to underwrite the people you're not certain about to get an advantage and get those learnings before anybody else on, look, maybe people might not think they're good for it, but they actually are. Um you know, right now you have everyone on Twitter is like, you got to create a newsletter. You got to create a newsletter. It's like, what's old is new again, right? Mm-hmm. Are you seeing that? I mean, I, I think um, some creators are actually doing that now. Like, what 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 are you seeing? Yeah, 100%. Every creator is thinking, how do I build deeper engagement with my community that can eventually turn to monetization? For example, short form, TikTok, YouTube shorts, Instagram reels have taken over a lot of creators focus over these past couple of years and they're so hard to monetize because you don't even form a connection to the creator you just form a connection to like here's this like very fungible five second clip of media that i'm going to swipe through and maybe if i see it five thousand times i'll start to like give a shit about the creator who's making it but if you stay focused on that upper funnel, it's like from a business POV, that's just leads. You're not doing anything with it. If you're able to get a creator to sign up for your newsletter or for your course, that's like the nearest part of the, that's the bottom part of the funnel where you can actually monetize and support yourself with it. And so, yeah, we're seeing tons of people start newsletters. What's really hard, a lot of creators are realizing though that they've never really built the engagement they needed to do that. I talked with a creator the other day who routinely gets over 10, 20 million views per short posted. Mm. And his business, he said every time he goes out for a brand deal, he doesn't feel like he has a business. He feels like he's playing the lottery. Yeah. Like, am I going to find a brand who wants to come in? Are they going to want to pay me enough? Are they going to be happy with the creative I make? And here's the scary part. He wants to move away from that and figure out things more tied to him beyond the 15 second clips he's putting out. But if he experiments with anything new, it's going to hurt his average view rate, which is going to hurt him when he goes out to brand saying, sure, I'm going to charge you this much, but look at what I historically get. 
And so you have to almost be willing as a creator, if you are trapped in this, oh, I'm just dependent on brand deals, you have to be willing to experiment with new formats that in the short term might actually hurt your metrics, but long term might build some of that deeper engagement so you can monetize from your followers more directly. And what would be like an example of some of these these new tests? I think a really great instance, I went to a workshop hosted by Sam and Colby maybe six, seven months ago. That wasn't the Vegas one, was it? It was the Vegas one, actually. Oh, yeah, that's, that's yeah. why you're on the plane. Oh, beautiful, yeah, yeah, yeah when we were yeah. coming out from JSX. Yep. Yeah, and I remember one of the things they did. So for those of you who don't know, Sam and Colby, they're absolutely brilliant creators. They produce primarily long-form horror documentaries. It's like over an hour, you go into YouTube, they're exploring a house, super deep engagement. A huge portion of their business is actually their merchandise, their apparel, because people care about them so much and they wear it. They started off as essentially pranksters on Vine. So the whole life cycle I just described on starting off with people not caring about you, how did they evolve? They said they followed, I remember this three to one rule, where when you're introducing new content, ideally if the type that builds a deeper connection because it's more about you than just like, here's a prank. Initially, for every three pieces of old content you're putting out, introduce one new piece of new content because you have to make the shift really gradual because in the beginning, that new content, it's going to do worse but it's worth it because metrics only matter as imperfect measures of what you're trying to really move. If you're trying to move your audience value, even if it's getting fewer views, those views might be more engaged, more deeply connected. And over time, you shift that ratio from three old pieces to one new piece to 50-50 to eventually one to three, one old, three new, and eventually you've shifted over to just entirely new content. And this can take years, but if you do it right, you'll see Sam and Colby People don't even necessarily remember they started off as Vine pranksters because of how well they've done in making that transition, this very deeply engaged content. Very strategic in how they did It's almost like a, also like a tactical evolution yeah. over time. You didn't just rip the bandaid off. No, because then people are going to be like, this is entirely different than what I was following you for. You see a lot of TikTokers, they'll make the mistake. Mm. They'll have their TikTok clips and then they'll go and like start YouTube. And they're like, well, I get like millions of views on my clips and I'm getting like a hundred views on my podcast or my long form yeah. video because it's so different damn never never occurred to me that 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 is what happened yeah <laughs> well, yeah um okay who do you think's doing it really well in the creator space right now? i was actually watching a little emma chamberlain piece with uh, colin and samir and yeah like, she seems pod. like she's really evolved right but yeah it's because it, the reason i'm asking this is it seems like most creators fall flat when it comes to making money they just they yeah. not only do not pay taxes they, they also don't really know how to monetize yeah, I think there's actually two, three interesting points when we dig into it. So I think number one to what we just said around the evolution, Emma's a great example. Once upon a time, she's putting videos out like, gosh, every week for years. And it was the classic YouTube like all capital letters, like somewhat clickbait. And over the past year or two, she drastically decreased the amount of videos she was putting out. I think this year so far, she's put out like three or four. And they started just to be really simple subjects and titles. It'd be like soup. Like that would be the whole title. And like you tune in on her and she's just making soup. Because from the evolution POV, you need to adapt and you want to avoid burnout. Putting out the constant more clickbaity stuff, it wasn't fulfilling her anymore. And she had built up enough familiarity with the audience. She's able to do a much slower, more informal vibe. And it was totally okay. And this actually leads to another point. You mentioned a bit about a lot of creators aren't able to monetize. And I think the way you monetize has to be really different depending on the type of creator you are. Emma, for example, has said in an interview to the New York Times, she considers herself the opposite of Mr. Beast. Because Mr. Beast, when he's on YouTube, he's thinking about how do I build a business? 
Whereas Emma described herself as, I'm thinking through YouTube as an artistic canvas. There are creators who are like her who view it very much as art. Maybe they want to go into Hollywood. Maybe they purely want to express themselves. There are creators who are very much in that vid summit mold of, I'm putting out these videos. Let's optimize the heck out of these thumbnails and retention because I need to make money. How you make money really varies depending on your mindset. Those vid summit creators, they are very AdSense driven because they are so good at optimizing and just putting out content. Mm -hmm. They make so much money just from getting views. And yes, obviously like brand deals are a clear natural follow on, but then you like go one further degree. It's like, oh, I guess like they could do merch. They could do their own courses. Like they should just focus on AdSense. You're so good at like putting this out. Like why try and stray? Just be really good at it. Someone like Emma, creators who want to follow that path, like you, you can't be AdSense optimized because the whole point is you have this artistic impulse you want to follow that doesn't dictate, let me put out X videos per X days. You have to go really hard on building a super deep connection I can monetize through other ways. Like maybe it's brand deals, maybe it's launching your own things. And so I think a lot of creators, they're not thinking deeply through the ways I monetize have to be really different depending on the type of creator I am. And then whatever efforts they try, it doesn't work. Like I've seen TikTokers who try to launch merch lines and they can't sell anything because that's not a monetization format that's really conducive to how they've grown their following. And what do you think is like an underrated monetization channel for creators right now? Well, one, one thing I'm really excited about are when there's a blurring of lines between are you a creator who's now monetizing through your own products and merch or are you just a business that's advertising through content? So what I mean by that, I'll give you a couple examples. I'm good friends with this group that produces this drink called Nectar. It's like an Asian heart seltzer that competes with White Claw. Mm. And they also produce a podcast called Under the Influence that's hugely successful to the point where many people, they don't realize the podcast was started originally because the seltzer company couldn't run ads because it's alcoholic and this is the content marketing they developed. People think the YouTube channel started first and I'll like, I guess here's the seltzer that they promote in conjunction with it. The founder, Jeremy, Jeremy Kim, is not only CEO, he's also talent on camera. And they are one of the fastest growing brands in the space right now and they've parlayed their online presence and distribution to getting in-shelf distribution at all of these stores that normally would take years to decide whether to give this new seltzer brand space. And I think that's a great example of, well, like, are they a YouTube channel that promotes a seltzer? Are they a seltzer channel that like promotes content? Like it's all the same from the start. The new generation of entrepreneurs are going to be thinking about how can I build this in conjunction with content from day one? Yep. I think that's what I'm really, really excited about. Yeah. I think it's this whole concept of business creators, right? I, yeah. You know, I have some friends like $112 million company, $30 million EBITDA, bootstrapped, right? And like, well, it's mainly driven from the top, from yeah. top, top of the funnel content, right? I think another good example of this that I think more people will find new twists on it. So like Liquid Death is said to be filing for an IPO soon, right? In the hundreds of millions of dollars range. It's just water. Yep. It's just water. Mm -hmm. But they've branded it so darn well. And a lot of it's been through social media. A lot of it's been through traditional advertising. But like they... Hey, if they IPO, like that's that's a big one for the space. Like that's kind of what Nectar's doing, although very YouTube and digital native driven. I think that again, like 
as time goes on, the next wave of entrepreneurs, they're going to have grown up looking at TikTok since day one. They're just going to keep thinking about how do I build a brand using social media from the start? Yeah, it's marketing constantly evolves, right? And this is the evolution, right? Exactly. Yeah. So this is like the new version of what was SEO paid media back in the day. That's like evolving now. Yeah. How about like, what are you seeing like in terms of behaviors with the top performing creators that you're using Carrot versus like the low performing ones? Like are, are there any trends where it's like, hey... This is what separates the wheat from the chaff. Yeah, I think of it very much as... So th there's, I'd say, two different lenses through which to look at it. The first lens is, say you're like, say you're already a successful creator, which like the average creator on Carrot makes hundreds of thousands of dollars. We started with the upper segment. So say you're like, you've really reached a modicum of success. What really helps differentiate you there? And then there's another lens, which is, so you're trying to get there, right? Because I think the answer is a little bit different for each of them. I think in the first, it actually becomes a mental game more than anything. Um, similar to, I think, being a founder, where it's about how do you avoid burnout? Because as a creator on that level, like you're already making money, right? And so it's very much about how do I ensure I keep making money when I know the algorithm could change any day? How do I start to make decisions where, you know what, like, even though my following is not going to grow, I have to try out this new format of content. Or, you know, I'm going to make less money this year because I'm going to go and get a COO. I'm going to bring on somebody to help me manage and edit. The creators who already are making good money, the ones who really start to stand out are the ones who are willing to take on additional risk and have the mental fortitude to make scary decisions that might hurt them in the short term. Because long term, it's going to prevent them from burnout and help them take it to the next level. I think that answer is different, though, for the creators who are a little bit earlier stage. We're just trying to get there in the first place. With them, I see a lot of very early stage creators will be like, oh, you know, like I put in this content, like I'm shadow banned. <laughs> like the algorithm doesn't like me. It's like, no, mm -hmm. like the algorithm's not perfect, but it's not trying to shadow ban you. You just haven't yet found your content market fit. And you need to focus on that more than anything before you worry about bringing on more people and trying different formats of monetization and everything else. Can you define content market fit? Where if you can consistently put out a video and know that a meaningful number of people are going to watch it, like that's content market fit. And why do I say meaningful? Meaningful doesn't mean 100, 1,000, 10,000, a million. It means the number of people where you can be bootstrapped, ramen profitable. Depending on your business model, maybe that's 100 views. Maybe that's 1,000 views if you have a really good way of engaging and monetizing with them. Or maybe you don't. You're very AdSense dependent, in which case you probably need like hundreds of thousands of views. It's to where you can literally support yourself. I just did this podcast with this chemistry YouTuber named Niall Red, who has over 5 million followers on his channel. He's wildly successful, makes, six, makes seven figures easily. And, you know, I talked with him. For years, he made 12K a year. <laughs> mm. For like multiple, more than one year, he was paying himself like $12,000, <laughs> which wow. is like, like literally he's like living with his parents. Like that's, it was like literally just but going how to big like, was he again? Uh, at the time he was small. Okay. And he had to spend years until like, it was only after four or five years of putting out videos, like high quality videos on a regular basis. He finally hit this one really successful video called uh, turning jewelry into gold bars. And then his channel started to take off. And now he's like wildly successful and everyone knows who he is. He had to figure out how to hit ramen profitable, right? And like whatever meaningful number of views you need to hit that, um, you just need to keep burn low and just like keep trying different things until you hit there before you start to scale. Who do you think is doing it really well as a creator right now, just overall across the board? So 
I think a creator I really admire, and I've mentioned her before, but I'm going to mention her again for a slightly different reason. Alexandra Potes. Why do I really like her? Because she encapsulates a lot of the different things we've talked so far. First of all, like that grind when you're ramen profitable. Like she previously had done a Y Combinator back to startup graduating oh, from Stanford. Yeah. Yeah. And it didn't work. They shut it down, which really sucked. And mentally as a founder, if something I try doesn't work, like I'm going to feel depressed and really bad. And she has so many people telling her, oh, you know, like you should like go and join like Snapchat or Instagram or Meta, or whatever, like you're Stanford educated former founder. And she's like, no. And she just went home and like every day for hours for months, just sat and just played chess online. She just grounded out. Number one. Uh, number two, when she finally hit that kind of market fit, she immediately started to think about how do I pivot and expand to what we were just talking about? Like, yeah, she is most well-known for chess, but I mentioned to you, she's really starting to invest a lot in poker and you seemed familiar with that as well. She hasn't been afraid to think about, okay, maybe chess brought me here, but maybe some creators would be like, well, I guess I just have to do chess until the end of time. It's like, no, like I'm gonna start to do other types of formats like poker, like variety streams, because she already knew like I have to expand. Number three, she's very business savvy. She has a team helping her manage her accounting and finances. And like that's one of the reasons she was one of our very first clients and one of our very first angels. Because even though I wasn't saying, hey, we're going to help your YouTube videos explode 10x, she recognized the value of if I can get anything that helps me manage my business like even a little bit better on the stuff that I don't want to waste my time figuring out, that's more time for her to focus on making money. Got it. I love that. A lot of these creators, they tend to hang out with each other. I mean... Like Sam and Colby, that's one of the probably only creator even I went to. Usually I just go to yeah. like these business or founder retreat things, right? Um, Which but, you, you host yourself actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but like, I just know they like they like to stick with each other and totally. usually they're not talking about business really. And they're just talking about like how they can just really, really how to play the creator game better. Right. Like you, you just mentioned, I think um, there's these creator houses, there's these creator agencies, there's like this whole world and it's pretty opaque to me. So can you shed some light on that world? Yeah, I think there's two points I'll make here. The first is how I've gotten to know this world, not as a native creator myself. And the second is what I think is the big focus of everyone in that ecosystem right now, which has some overlap with what you do, right? You obviously run your own business, but you also do content. So starting with the first point, I'm a big believer that the most interesting opportunities in life come from the intersection of different spheres, right? If you look at like the different spheres in life, right? There's like business and finance, there's tech, there's media, there's medicine, there's politics, there's science and academia. Like I listed five pretty different ones right there. And there are people who are so specialized in each, but it's when you have people talking to each other across those spheres, that's where cool ideas come out. Or if you yourself can find a way to play in multiple of those areas, you stand out. And so in getting to know this ecosystem in the very early days, I had nothing to offer from a content and entertainment POV whatsoever. But I had a lot to offer from the business, finance, and technology realms because I had previously worked in investment banking at Blackstone. I worked at McKinsey. On the tech side, I worked at Instagram. Yeah. And so when I'd meet with creators, there would be a certain portion who, even though like I couldn't help them on the content side or the YouTube piece whatsoever, they were interested in learning, oh, like what was it like working with big Fortune 500 companies and consulting? Like, why would they even pay you? Like, what could you possibly help them with? Or like, cool, like at Instagram, 
how does Instagram think about creators? What are things I can do to stand out? And there's almost this like equivalent of value. It's like, hey, I can teach you about this if you teach me about YouTube. And over time, that became another sphere that I gained knowledge about. I would say now I'm in the intersection of finance, technology, and the creator world. Like my co-founder and I, we spend a lot of time chatting with investors in the VC ecosystem and other founders. We spend a lot of time speaking with bankers and folks in the financial technology space, payments processors. And we spend a lot of time on the YouTube piece. And in each one of those areas, there are people who know way more than we do. But we know more than any banker about YouTube. We know more than any YouTuber about how the banking system works. And that's what really helps us stand out. That's the first thing I was going to say. Just how do you enter an ecosystem you might not be familiar with to start with? The second point, which is your question on, well, okay, cool. Like all that being said, this is like kind of its own world. What's going on there? Always by far, people are caring about what content are you going to make and how many, how much engagement, how many views are you getting from it? Everyone's following everyone to just try and learn the new meta. So for example, I'm pretty familiar with the podcasting meta at this point because, mm-hmm. hey, you know, I'm a podcast with you right now. You run a podcast, like I do a podcast. And you notice over time, there are various different ways to do a podcast. Like for example, you have the like creator-focused interviews. Colin and Samir obviously are the best and well-known. There are many others beginning to do this as well. Like Sean Yushai has done an excellent mm, job. Yep. Right. There's also like um, Hayden Hillier Smith does like an editing focused version. Like that's a certain meta. Hey, I'm going to bring on a guest who's very successful and they're going to talk to me about what they've done. And every episode you're going to hear from a different guest. That's an entirely different podcast meta from there's an entire portion of YouTubers uh, under the influence is a great example. The Nectar folks I mentioned, another one's called Suburb Talks. It's just a group of the same people generally week after week. They're just gathering together and they're just talking about relationships and they're getting hundreds of thousands of views per every single pod they put out and there's no guest it's just a different meta it's just a bunch of people sitting on a table because you feel like you get to know them and you're almost just listening and to be like a fly in a wall and be like oh like here's my friends and so like when i'm in podcast circles i'm always thinking studying and learning like okay how do people in this sphere like okay if you're doing the model where you bring in a guest like how do you bring on good guests like how do you host a really good interview is play to every guest when they want to talk about something different versus oh the second area i'm like hey like you guys are just the same people every single month like every single week like what do you talk about to keep interest when you're not switching up the guests or like oh some people only post on youtube they're very video focused some people only post on podcast platforms like how are your monetization models different how are you thinking about things differently and so i think it's always in no matter what sphere you're in people are always thinking about like how can i be better how can i get more attention, engagement, and make more money. By the way, like when you do the Carrot Podcast, because you have creators from all walks of life, you have like magicians, you have like gamers or whatever, right? Um, how do you decide what to talk about? Or is it, I'm basically asking for the the Eric way, yeah. way of care, like podcasting now. So I'm still figuring it out and it's really hard because the common point that holds together a podcast is two things. Number one, we bring on guests who have built a strong social following. And number two, we talk through the emotional piece of their journey where we try and get into bigger questions like, why do you even do this in the first place? Like, what's your goal? And it's been hard because when those two points, there's so much variation where, for example, we've interviewed Layla Hormozzi and Graham Stephan. That caters to like a very particular segment of 
people who enjoy watching that type of entrepreneur, that type of creator. But as you said, you know, we're going to release like three, four pods in a row on Twitch streamers. The people who follow Graham and Layla probably don't follow these streamers. It's a disparate audience. So what can we do to try and build that consistency? I think it really comes down to, as a host, how much of your own personality you can show. Like you have to obviously highlight the guest because like, you know, you're bringing them on. That's the format of the podcast and find ways to share more about yourself almost while you're hosting and interviewing the guest creator with, with the questions that you ask yeah with the questions yeah. or sharing yeah. little bits of yourself yeah. and it's like hard because sometimes i'll get comments from people who are like man can you just like shut the fuck just up stop talking about yourself blah, yeah blah, blah. like <laughs> i just want to hear from the guests i don't give yeah. a shit about you yeah and that's a great case where it's like sometimes you have to be willing to make very distinct choices because there are people who are only going to watch for that one particular guest mm -hmm. and well cool so they'll watch for that one video nothing else i do but also fuck those guys because it's your conversations yeah but it's like well <laughs> i am going to choose to cater toward the people who care not just about the guest but also about my perspective yeah. on it so like i am going to keep talking yeah because if you're only watching me for the guest you're not going to be a steady consistent viewer yeah i'd ask i mean even for yourself right the podcast that you're hosting right now, how do you think about it? First of all, in the context of your broader business model, like why are you doing the podcast from a business POV? And then I'd ask on top of that, why are you doing it from a personal POV? First POV, so I'll answer the business POV piece. It's, it's very simple for me. So I have a services business, it's an ad agency and it's the Gary V model. My, my podcast co-host, Neil Patel, he's got, we, we just do the same thing, right? It's just like, I like having, I love learning and teaching. And so this fulfills my desires for that personally, mm -hmm. but then it feeds into leads for the agency. So a lot of our leads come through SEO, they come through other channels, but this works really well. Cause a lot of people say, dude, you know, the questions that you asked are so business oriented, blah, yeah. blah, blah, but I just love this shit. So very cool. And how did the ad agency start? So I took it over from Neil's cousin like nine years ago. So mm -hmm. it was a turnaround. Um, and I think what I was also say too, to add on, like our, our business, it's it's a high LTV model, right? Like yeah. high customer lifetime value. Um, and sometimes these can grow to like six or seven figures, sometimes eight figure deals wow. too. So. so for you, it actually, again, speaking on how you build models around content, if doing the podcast every week helps bring on a potential viewer who reaches out to you and ends up becoming a client, yep. that's so meaningful for yeah, you. Yeah, it's, and, and it's like... It's like cheating to me because it's like, I already enjoy this. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I'm going to make money doing this. Too? I'll, I'll do it all day. See, I think that's the secret of life. It's finding the business models to support your personal interests. Mm -hmm. like, you're your guy, right? Exactly. If yeah, you like yeah. to do it anyways. Yep. I'm so curious. You mentioned the ad agency. I'm only high level familiar with that agency. I assume it's you have a business or client who comes to you. They say, hey, I want to promote something. Go buy me ads. How do you differentiate yourself as an ad agency? Like, what are you figuring out? Yeah, great question. And and so, like, first, like, I come from tech, by the way. So I used to poo-poo on agencies, right? It's like, oh, it's not scalable, oh, blah, no blah, way. blah. I didn't know yeah. That. yeah. It's like, it's such a crappy business. So people, like, but what business is not people-oriented? Right. Like, you you need good engineers, right? So it's like, so, but I didn't realize it. Like, I kept looking at the grass on the other side. It's like, let's go do other stuff. But then I realized maybe a couple of years ago that the grass is greener where you water it. Mm. And so like when, if you have an agency that's doing like, let's say 20, 30 million in EBITDA, 
you're ha- you're basically you're basically having to exit every year. If assuming you're owning majority, you own fifty percent. Yeah. And then if you want to sell, most people don't know this, but pre twenty twenty two, people agencies were selling at, at multiples were fifteen to twenty x. That's so high. Yeah. Why is that so high? Because private equity, right? So maybe now think they they've like shaped up a little bit, but still you can you can sell for like at least ten x. Okay, I would assume a services business usually trades. I mean, you had Cody Sanchez on recently, right? Mm-hmm. A much lower multiple, like five x yep. or lower. Mm-hmm. Why would you? Uh, again, uh, knowing it's in a different age, why were you? Why would you get 15x? Like, what's the scalability? Like, what's the moat there, right? So, I think private equity likes it because it's there's there's a lot of recurring that's tied to it, and especially when you have people that are buying paid media, for example, Facebook ads or Google, it's it's recurring and usually it's pretty sticky because they don't uh, want to move agencies and there's an RFP model, agency of record model, all that type of stuff. So, you, say I sell water bottles, I'm gonna come to you and be like. Look, my LTV from selling water bottles, I don't know, maybe subscription water bottles, it's like pretty high. Just figure out ads for me. Like you go and handle search words on Google and SEO and Facebook ad buying because it's so complicated. Figure out the right creatives, figure out the right bids. Like, is that basically what you do? It is. And to your point, I I guess to answer your question on what differentiates you. So I think, you know, what we tell prospects or clients, it's it's, it's our level of thinking, right? So Mm. the way we push our internal marketing, like, we're doing a podcast right now. Like marketing yeah. school gets like 1.7 million downloads a month. We're looking to ramp it. We're always pressing new things. Like with SEO, we're doing programmatic SEO. So it's like whatever we do with our internal marketing, we're trying to translate it to our clients in our mission as a business. Wow. It's like I used to think this is bullshit, a mission culture, right? But it's like the mission is to do innovative marketing that drives customers just straight up. If it's not innovative, it's not driving customers, like we don't want to do it. There's like this really interesting, more philosophical point where say you find you're something you're really good at, which for you is like, buying and running ads. Do you double down on that, which is let me just run ads for more people, or do you diversify a little? Or like, for example, you could launch your own, I don't know, sneaker brand and mm-hmm. you're so good at ad buying, why not launch yep. your own business line? So how yes. have you thought about that? So I, that's what I did before. And then yeah. I real so I got punched in the face a couple of times. You know, there's a period of time where we're doing all these acquisitions. We had a SaaS company, education, all this shit, oh, right? Wow. And it's like but it's like, how how naive can I be to think that I can outperform, no matter how smart or good I am, that I can split my attention 10 different ways. Wow. So like, if you just focus on care, no doubt you're going to have a great outcome. Sure. Right. Um, but I think the problem with us is like we, at least for me, like we get ahead of our skis and we think we're better than we are. And then, then you get punched in the face and it's like, okay. No, I, I kind of love that point because I think there's like, I mean, you find yourself really good at one thing, which you're like, well, I'm amazing at marketing. You're like, well, like everything else should be obviously easy and it's like no like life is hard like business is hard i think actually a lot of creators are into that too because in a way they're also really good at marketing distribution similarly you albeit through a different method where sometimes you see a lot of creators who are like oh well it's gonna be so easy let me just like spin out a business on the side because i have the distribution and if they try and do it themselves a lot of times they're like oh this is so hard and maybe i should just refocus on the distribution part and and then you know it's like oh um i'm just gonna go hire operator to run this and buy this business it's like dude it ain't that easy man yeah come on so so you went through that whole journey and you mentioned that before the ad agency you had come from the tech world Mm -hmm. so what motivated you that's like a pretty big jump right like you know five six years ago i made a similar jump to leave Mm -hmm. instagram and start care what motivated you to leave what you were doing start the ad agency yeah so um chamath actually invested in this this company so it was the online education that's a pretty good reason yeah so so, no no sorry the company i was at so the the tech company so it was reed hoffman chamath it was like kevin rose all these a-lister who's who yeah yeah, yeah. an angel investor And, and so um and then back then online education was like the thing right and we're 
you know, it was a... Uh, was this like a MOOC? Like those... Yeah. Oh, it was a MOOC, like, yeah. Like Udemy, that sort of thing? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're no longer in business. I actually tried to buy them like two years ago with my friend, but... Oh, what um, happened? They, um... Let's see how much I can go into here. Okay, I'll just say this. <laughs> Don't I, worry. Yeah. I believe, and if he actually ends up watching this, like I believe that the company was mismanaged because the CEO couldn't focus. Wow. And that that is like another reinforcer of focus. What right you there. just said. You're like, yes. I'm really good at running ad agency. I should focus on this. Yeah. But like, I didn't learn that until like, you know, call it four yeah. or five years ago, right? Wow. Um, and, but I would just say, okay, so the reason I decided to switch was one, I was already working in tech, but then Neil at the time, he's like, hey, you helped save this company because basically we're about to go bankrupt and we were running out of money. Yeah. And um, I bet the entire company on YouTube ads and it worked out, raised our Series B, we wow. continued on. Um, and so then it was like, well, come help save this ad agent. I'm like, dude, I'm in tech, man. I'm too good for an agency. Like, and so, um, but then I reframed it. I was like, wait, if I can save this crappy company, I think I can do like a lot more than I think I can. So that was the play. I kind of love that too because... I think growing up, I always tried to be like really well-rounded. Like, oh, I should work on my weaknesses. And the older I get, it's like, no, 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 like screw that. Just like double down on your strengths. And like for you, again, there's this like clear spike you have in figuring out marketing. And you're like, well, in some ways, if you're really good at marketing, writing an ad agency is like the purest distillation of that. And then just getting really good at your own marketing to help the marketing agency. And it's just like, oh, this wow, loop. it makes so much sense. <laughs> yeah. If you're good at marketing, you can market your own marketing agency. Yep. And then yep. here's your flywheel yep. to like. And it's not like I'm doing the work, you know right, what I mean? Right, right. So. Wow. And so, like, okay, you mentioned like you saved this company by like going really hard on YouTube ads. What, what do you mean by that? Like, what did you figure out? Was it like, okay, like, hey, I'm going to run this creative targeted for like these topics? Like, what did you do differently? Okay, this one was simple. This is, okay, so. Um, I was like 25 years old, right? And like a month into the job, um, the CEO said, hey, like if you don't hit numbers, we're gonna have to let you go next month. I was like, what, what the fuck? I've been here for like a month, dude. And then wow. so I was like, okay, you're gonna fire me. Okay, so I opened their Google ads and then I was like, okay, what actually performed? And then I saw something. There's a campaign, a YouTube campaign that actually performed. The CPA numbers were good. And I was like, why didn't you just bet on this? And the, my predecessor, like, you know, he just turned it off. I was like, okay. All in. So like all the budget went to that. And then um, boom, we went to like 500 users a month to like 5,000 then 10,000 or whatever. So 1,000, yeah. that's insane. And then like, you know, TechCrunch featured Good Morning USA, all this stuff was happening. So. What I also love about that too is like, so people always ask like, how do you know if you're hiring someone who's good? And I always tell them very upfront, like I still am learning and I'm not sure I am. But one of the things that really matters, this comes from my co-founder, you know, as CEO, my job is to tell you this is where the goal is. A really killer team can figure out how to get there. And I, I love how your CEO, <laughs> maybe one of the right things that he did was to bring you in yeah. and basically say like, hey man, like I don't know how we're going to hit these numbers, yeah. but you need to hit these numbers. Or else you're gone. Yeah. And yeah. you being like actually very good, it's like you, you just found a way that he would not have figured out himself. Like that's yeah. like the perfect example of someone just crushing it yeah. versus hey let me just sit here and tell you like here's the xyz things you need to do i've hired people i'll be like hey like your goal is to do x and they're like well what, what should i do like how do i do that i'm like dude i don't yeah. know like that's why i brought you on have you heard of that concept of barrels and ammunition no tell me more okay so this is you know case boy right yes. so so if you, you google it later it's it's basically he says look in, a, in an organization you have barrels these are like cannons where you shoot the cannonballs through mm. The rest of the company usually their their ammunition or their barrels, right? Because huh. the 
to push initiative forward, initiatives forward, you have to push it through a cannon. Right. Right. But most people just aren't that. They won't make things happen. They won't take initiative. They won't take accountability. And they need to be told what to do. Yeah. Right. Um, and so it's really hard to find the barrels. And you know what's interesting? Yeah. I'll, I'll share one more story. Then I have a bunch more questions for you. Um, of course. There is, there's, a book called Scaling People. Mm. And um, at one of my events, I, I gave away like a hundred of them. And um, one of my friend, my friends, he has a holding company. He he gave it, he went to a conference and saw one of his executives. He's like, hey, here's the book. It's, it's fucking thick, right? Really heavy too. Yeah. So she hated him for like a week because it was super heavy. <laughs> nice. um, and then like two weeks later, she's like, I read the entire thing. This is amazing. We are, we're going to do all these things. Like that is what a barrel does. Mm. And um, I get, the reason bring, I'm bringing this up is because you're talking about like, maybe there's some people problems or whatever, right? right? It's like, but everything's a people problem. And that book is like the new modern day high output management from Andy wow. Grove. I need, to, I need to learn that. One of my biggest humblings is like, oh gosh, I, I really struggle at learning how to manage well. Right? And I think people don't realize how big of a difference there is from doing it yourself to managing other people. You know what's interesting? Um, so Neil, my podcast co-host, so he'll talk about this because we, we have two separate ad agencies. He yeah. has his, I have mine. He doesn't get to talk to people. So he's like, and I'm not saying you're like this, but he's like, he knows he's really bad with people. And he also knows like, he, he makes people cry too, right? Sometimes like, because he's just very direct. Oh. And so he gets put into a box. It's just like, dude, you just go drive traffic. And then like everything else falls under that. Oh, uh, that's another good example of like, know what you're good at and know what you're not. And it sounds like Neil's like, huh, maybe I'm not good at managing. Let me just go and bring awareness to what we're doing. Yeah. The, the curse is if you're good at everything, which I feel like you're good at, you're good at many things. Uh, so. I'm, I'm working at it, man. I'm working. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah. Well, okay. Th this ties in pretty well. Please, I mean, look, yeah. you got, you, 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 I mentioned, I, you mentioned on, um, you did a talk and you said you're, you're very much a Asian parents wet dream, right? So you yes. got Harvard, right? You got Blackstone, McKinsey, Instagram, all the things, right? Like those are like all the infinity stones. How do you think that's helped shape you into the person that you are today? From a personal POV, I really needed those things because I had very little self-esteem. And I think it's a mix of, of course, the environment I was raised in, where my parents coming from China, operating with a scarcity mindset, were so focused on ensuring I had a good life that they really drilled into me like, oh, you have to hit these strong external validators of success, which is like, oh, like these prestigious brand names and like XYZ income. Because like when you grow up super poor, which we did, like that's what really matters. But I also think, to be clear, you ultimately, you have to take responsibility for yourself. And sure, like while that was the environment I was raised in, at the end of the day, I internalized a lot of these. I think my personality, too, I would use these metrics as a way to define what I should be focused on, how good to feel about myself. So I spent a huge portion of my life really directing myself toward achieving XYZ things. But the secret is once you get them, the rest of your life just continues the same. So if you were only doing things because you were hoping to hit this one milestone, guess what? There's like that one brief moment where you hit it and you feel amazing. And then it's back to what you were doing, except like you've hit the milestone. There's a quote from the science fiction author, Neil Gaiman, where he says, the price of getting what you want is having what you once wanted. Because if you have it, cool. That's what was powering you the whole time. And I think the secret to resolve this is you have to find things that you, at least to some meaningful way, enjoy for their own sake. So this way, when you hit the milestone, you're motivated to keep going. So to answer your question, I 
really needed to hit a lot of those different milestones to help myself reach a level of personal security where I'm like, cool, now I can do things more aligned with what I actually want, despite what other people think, because I have all these credentials gathered up, as well as a big realization, a bucket of cold water that, you know, every time I hit one of those things, I'm not as happy as I thought I would be, which is a good impetus for why I need to rethink my entire school thought to start with. So sometimes I share these things and I've seen people comment and talk about like, well, like, screw you, man. Like you have them. Like you have the luxury and privilege of stating these things. I'm like, yeah, that's super fair. I'm not saying like, don't do them. I'm just saying as someone who went through that, these are the realizations I've had now and what I'm trying to change. But also like you had to earn your privilege too, right? So that's what irks me about people that say that. What got you to listen to your parents? Because obviously my parents want to be a doctor, go to Harvard and all that too. But I'm just like, oh, fuck you. I'm going to play EverQuest. I'm going to play World of Warcraft. I'm going to start websites, blah, blah, blah. Like, so I I just didn't listen. (laughs) So why did you listen? I mean, in a way, I actually find that way cooler. I find like... 99% 99% of people who I think are doing interesting things that we meet in our worlds, like, did not go to, like, the standard, like, oh, like, Ivy League, corporate route, whatever. Because people who go that route do just end up being doctors and lawyers and bankers. And there's nothing wrong with that. But to do interesting things, it is like, oh, you know, how did you become, I don't know, like, the next, like, Bill Gates of online multiplayer, massively multiplayer games. Well, I played EverQuest as a kid, right? So first of all, like I love that. And uh, I also played a lot of video games as a kid, which I think directly led toward interest in streaming, which directly led to my interest in working with creators. But uh, to your point where she's like, yeah, like, well, I mean, I think that I was just really afraid. And I would like, as I got older, begin to rebel more and more. But it was so assumed this is the right way to live life that I wasn't even thinking, oh, like, should I do something otherwise? Because I wasn't even aware there was an otherwise to be done. So to give you an example, David Foster Wallace once gave this commencement speech where he talks about like these two goldfish and they're having like a casual chat. And like goldfish number one is like, hey, man, like, how's it going? And goldfish number two is like, yeah, it's pretty good. Like, how's the water? And goldfish number one's like, what, what are you talking about? Because he's not even aware. He's like so immersed by the water. He's not even aware it's existing. And I think that was very similar for me. I just wasn't aware there were other things I could do. And it wasn't until I really like went to college. So I got into Harvard and I'm there. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like miserable and gave up so many things to hit this arbitrary milestone. But I'm like, oh, it's worth it. And, you know, because I was meant for this. And I just assumed like everyone at Harvard is going to be like me. And then I met, to be clear, definitely there were a lot of people like me there. But there are also a lot of people who like, nah, we're just like normal-ish human beings who just like got in because they were so passionate about what they did and they were really good at it and they weren't doing it to get into Harvard. It's like they were so amazing mm-hmm. that Harvard just came as a byproduct. Yep. And it's like, well, I've like been optimizing my whole life for the milestone. You've been optimizing your life to actually do the thing you want to do where the milestone sort of came incidentally. Mm. And like you seem like way more fulfilled yep. because now you got in. But that's almost like a so what? You're going to continue on trying to do what you want to do. Yeah. I got in and I'm like, why? Well, I, I don't I don't know anymore. I'm, I'm an empty shell of a human being because that that was my purpose. So what did you yeah. do? Well, that's where I started to rebel more, right? I Well, I mean, <laughs> I got super depressed. I got to see- You didn't drop off because your parents would kill you. Did you? <laughs> uh, they probably would have. But like, I remember I, my sophomore, um, my freshman or sophomore year, I came home and I got a C minus in my intro to computer science course because I was just so depressed. I didn't turn in my final project on time. 
And as you know, all these courses, your final project is like 66% of your grade. C minus still is pretty good. Yeah, I'm like C minus A, man. You know, yeah. it's like whales, just be above sea level, right? If yeah. you need to breathe. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I just remember this coach. Colin Powell got C's in college. I remember this because I remember trying to bring that to Should my parents. It? I was like, oh, I don't know, like Secretary of State minus? got C's. Like, uh, like yep. C minus is really that bad. But uh, I think that's such a great moment. I was like, oh gosh, like I'm so miserable. And my parents hate this so much that if I continue down this current path, like, oh, things are going to end really badly. And that's when I was like, you know what? Like, maybe I'm going to just start to do things differently. And like, you know, heavenly, shockingly new surprise, try and take courses I actually wanted to go. I was literally taking the course my dad was telling me to do, which sounds like so stupid, but I just didn't know any better. And I was like, I'm going to come back and I'm going to be like, I'm going to take my own courses. And he's like, again, I, I had the very fortunate privilege where my dad paid for college, but it became a weapon too, because he's like, if you don't take XYZ courses, yep. I will stop paying. Yep. And, you know, I think a braver person than I was would have said, well, fuck you, I'm going to do it anyways. And yep. like, I'll pay for it myself. I wasn't that person. And it wasn't until much later, I was like, well, I'm going to take things I want to do. And it just sort of gradually became this, I'm going to separate myself away from the environment I was raised in to give myself more of the emotional space to make my own choices. So today, I, I don't talk to my parents much at all. I talk to my dad on the phone maybe once every year. And, you know, it's sad. I'm sad about it. I would love to have a close relationship. And I see many of my friends do. And I'm like, well, look, I respect he is the way he is because this is what he needed to survive. And he wants the best for me. And unfortunately, it manifests in a way where I just can't deal with that. And so yep. this is sort of the best for both of us. For now. Yeah, yeah for, for now. Maybe it could change. Yeah. For um, sure. Wh where, where do they live? So they're both in New Jersey. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Your phone number was New Jersey. Um, yeah. East Coast. So do you think, okay, we're, we're talking about our Asian American scars here. Do you think it's yeah. been helpful, like the upbringing, like it's just, you're never good enough, right? You got to go to Harvard this. It's like, look at this kid, look at this kid. There's not like, hey, look at this amazing thing you do. It's just like, no, even if you did something good, it's like, you still kind of <sighs> suck. Well, you know, it's really hard to say I had a conversation with a good friend of mine who's like a very high achiever and I was asking him because he has a kid I was like oh are you gonna be like a tiger dad and he was like yeah kind of and I was like whoa really because frankly if I ever had a kid which you know I probably wouldn't which is a whole other topic if I ever did have a kid I'd just be like super chill and he was like well look how I turned out like yeah I was like miserable but I like accomplished all these things and I was like uh. and it sort of goes to your point it's like People are like, wow, like, yeah, you like went through all this misery, but like you seem to be doing well, don't you? And it goes to this like broader existential question, which is just like, what's like the meaning of life? Like, I don't think in an existential philosophical point, there is any inherent meaning you get to choose. And if your meaning in life is like he or she who dies with the most toys wins, then like maybe, yeah, this is the way you want to raise yourself to be raised and raise others. But if your meaning is a little bit different, which for me, it's more around, I wanted to do the things that I want to do, which requires recognizing they might not be the things society wants me to do. Well, then, you know, the upbringing I went through clearly helped make me who I am today, but it's not the same behaviors and rules that I want to follow going forward. Yeah, I, I feel like, I mean... I'm a, I think I'm a little older than you. You're what, late 20s? Actually, I'm 32 years old. 32. Okay, so yourself? I'm, I'm 37. Yeah. So um, I I think I'm growing to appreciate we're both it Asian, more. so we both look younger than we yeah, are. Yeah, we do. Yeah. We, we still, you're, you look like you're definitely in your 20s. I get 28 sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Um, but my point is like, I used to resent my parents for like all yeah. the, the pressures, right? And just like, I don't want to do what I don't want to do, right? Um, and like the only reason I graduated from from like 
UCSDs because like they wanted a diploma, right? Um, but now I'm like, you know what? I think all that pain and suffering, like, you know, sure, it strained the relationships, but it's like, I think it net net, it was a win. So, you know, maybe it was a good thing. I think if it related to that, I think of it as was it good or was it bad? I don't know, but it's the path I took to who I am today. And if the path were different, I don't know if my life would be better or worse, but I wouldn't be who I am today. And like on the whole, well, like sometimes I'm miserable and I'm always very stressed. I'm generally okay who I'm being today. So I think that to reconcile the classic question of like, was it worth it? Basically comes down to like, how do you feel about your life overall? And if on the whole, you're like, okay, like I'm here and I like being me, then I think it does become a sort of like, well, you know, that was a needed part for me to become who I am today. But, you know, I think there are a lot of people and there are moments I felt like this too in my life where I'm like, no, this feels terrible. <laughs> then I think that's where the resentment comes from more. Got it. Uh, so I guess <laughs> you mentioned, I, I just, I'm trying to understand your philosophies more. I, like, I'm like, oh, this is interesting. So why no kids? So, well, for the longest time growing up, I thought to myself, hey, like, I don't necessarily feel like resentment toward my parents anymore because I recognize they did the best they could and this is what they wanted for me. And like I said, it's because of them that I've turned out the way I am, right? But for a long time, I also was like, okay, well, like, I can't say I'm like very happy or rather was very happy during certain periods. I mean, during certain periods of my life, I was very depressed. I was like very, very unhappy, right? And like, sure, you know, quote unquote, it seems to be working out we think, right? We're always looking at like, yeah, a static dot and like the tableaus of our life, right? But like it, certain times I was like, well, you know, I almost would have preferred like not to have been born at all. And not in like a like depressed, like, oh my God, like I don't want to exist anymore way. More like a, I think when you have a kid, it's so hard to be a good parent. And I think everyone's trying their best. And I think there are ways to be a parent where your kid will have a life where they feel more free and secure and ways where they won't where they won't. And I look at this from the POV of like if you're not confident you can give your kid like a secure, positive life, do you really want to have a kid? And you know, my co-founder disagrees with me very much, very, very much. My co-founder absolutely wants to have kids. Like he sees it as like part of his moral imperative to bring kids into this world, right? And there are many people in popular culture who've spoken similarly about this mission, right? Again, I'm an existentialist. I don't think there's inherent meaning in life. I don't think I have a mission to bring someone into this world. I think the meaning in life is exactly what I choose it to be. And I'm like, well, I wouldn't want to have a kid if I don't think I could be the best, most amazing parent that I could be to that child. Hmm. And for many years, I was like, no, I don't think I would do a good job, honestly, because I'm still trying to figure myself out. As I get older, that allows a little bit more like, oh, I think I'd probably be better. And like, sure, I'm more open to it, but I'm still not necessarily like, yeah, I'm confident I'd be a great dad. And so if like, I'm not confident I'd be a great dad. Why would I ever want to have a kid? Why would I want to bring somebody into this world? Were you ever I'm confident you'd there? be a good founder? Uh... No, and I'm still not sure. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm I'm still not sure I'm a good founder, right? But I think the difference is, and well, two two points. One, that that is definitely a big source of my stress because when it's just you and your co-founder, and you're just fucking around. It's like great, but at this point, like we've raised over hundred million dollars. We have investors, we have clients, we have team members, 
right? It sucks because if you fail, that means people lose their money, people lose their trust in you, people lose their service, people lose their jobs. And, you know, my co founder, we take full responsibility for it. So it's, it's very, very stressful. Now, I think, now think about having a kid. Like, in some ways, it's a whole nother degree of that same, well, guess what? If you're not a good dad, like, cool. Like, you've brought somebody into this world who you may have inflicted additional pain and misery. And like, I don't, I don't want that. You know, I, I, I heard this. I, I, we did this, um, this entrepreneurs program in, I think it was an MIT. So we finished up in Boston. It was yeah. like three years ago. We did for three years. Sorry. Um, and then I was with a group of parents. So one guy's like six years old and then he has like five kids and then another gal, she has like a 21 year old. I was like, I was like, I don't have any kids. Right. But I'm right. like, look, in order to have a kid, like, I feel like my job is to like make, um, you know, help my kid be happy. And they're like, mm. I, they're like, we used to think that too, but that's not true. Our only job now, what we realized after having kids is like, it's just to help them survive, like give them the tools they need to survive. And then what, however happy they are, that's like their problem. And I was like, oh, that's interesting perspective. It, it is an interesting POV because I think it really comes down to a scarcity versus abundance mindset and Maslow's pyramid, his hierarchy of needs. We're like, the hierarchy, the way it works, right? At the very bottom, it is just about survival. It's like, here's like food and water and shelter. And then like one level up is like, do you have friends? And like the eventual highest level is like self-fulfillment. For me, I think everyone has the right to choose like how they want to raise their kids. For me, I don't want to bring a kid into this world if the main goal I have for them is survival because I'd rather not bring one into the world at all. If I'm going to bring a kid into this world, I want to help them reach self-fulfillment. Mm. Um, what does but- that look like? feeling that they have a really good sense of themselves and the internal self-esteem and freedom to pursue the things they care about, even though it might fail and it might not immediately or ever be conventionally successful, right? Like there are so many great cases of some of the biggest innovations in our world, whether scientific or culturally, are when people weren't even appreciated during their life at all. And yet I'm so glad that they lived and they worked hard on these things that they got no external validation for because clearly... They were really, really valuable. Got it. When you were driving for like going to Harvard or, you know, Blackstone, McKinsey, were you, so you, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it felt like you were optimizing for almost the, um, that was the destination, right? Like just right. getting the logo almost. That's right. What do you feel like you're optimizing for now? Hmm. I think, well, I think there's two pieces here that somewhat conflict. The first is freedom for myself. I want to do the things that I want to do. And that's freedom not only from an external POV, which is like, oh, are like people stopping you? Which, you know, the older you get, the less likely that is. The second is also like from a financial resources POV externally. But there's also an internal POV, right? Do you feel free to do what you want to do from an internal perspective? Maybe you feel anxiety or self-doubt, which I often feel. Sometimes the hardest thing is making a decision because you're so worried of what could go wrong or if you're making the right one. And I want freedom from all of those different types of constraints. The second thing, which isn't entirely aligned, is, yeah, I feel tremendous responsibility to carrot, right? Toward, as I mentioned, our investors, our clients, our customers, our team members succeeding. And I really, really hope that we make it work. And because we're a venture-backed startup, it might not, and that's going to super, super suck. And I think you see, like, there's a lot of, like, cultural tension, I think, over that point, where you see some founders 
give up, right? Mm. And there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's been a lot of founders in recent years who just returned the money. They raised a lot of money and they're like, hey, you know what? I can't make this work. And they just return it because they're like, well, mentally, this is no longer worth my time, like the opportunity cost, right? And for my co-founder and myself, at least right now, we're like, well, hell no, we're not going to do that because we were given this money with a mission, with a purpose. Like there is a piece around we got to try harder and we're not yet at that burnout point where it's like, oh, hmm, I would ever consider just returning and giving up. It is very much like, no, like there, there's responsibility we've been entrusted for to try and hit it. And I think the tension with that comes with how do you balance that with mental health? Because there are a lot of founders who return the money because it's like, oh my God, like they're like, they just, it's, they, they just do not see a path forward and that's just, just not going to work anymore. How do you, how do you deal with stress? Because for me, it's like, you know, poker helps a lot. I'll explain in yeah. a second, but you go first. Like, how do you deal with it? Well, I think number one, poker is a very good analogy because in poker, right? Here's the hand you've been dealt. Now you have to play it. And maybe your hand is better than other people's. Great. Let's not like pat ourselves on the back too much or feel morally superior. It's not like you necessarily deserve that hand. It's just the privilege you were given. Maybe your hand is worse than other people's. Cool. There's also not much point to like wasting emotional energy, being jealous of other people's hands. Like, whatever, they, they have the hand. Your goal is just to play the hand that you have. And I, I think there is a point here in life around not only stress, but also like your own privilege, right? Like we all come into this world with like a certain set of cards to play. And like sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad. And it's just making the most of what you have. And so I, I think the point around stress is just like, okay, cool. I have all this stress. A lot of it comes from stuff that I chose myself to do. Some of it, maybe not. Some of it, maybe I had less control over. Well, like, I still think there are interesting plays that I can make with this hand, and I, I want to go and play them out. Um, that's like from a very philosophical view of me, from like a much more tactical view of me. Like, yeah, it's hard. I'm still figuring it out. But like, I try and work out. That helps me a lot. Like, I try and like spend time with friends. I enjoy doing things like this where I get to know someone and also share more about myself to try and feel understood. So... Yeah, I think a mix of things. Yep. Yeah, it, it seems like you're very philosophical. I'm, I'm sure you're you're a big learner, big reader. So I guess what's in your learning stack? So I think the two different things I read. I mean, for long form, like actual books, I actually read primarily fiction. And I say that because I feel I've met so many people, and I feel like all the smart friends I have, all the long form books they read are nonfiction. They're like, well, like why would I waste time reading fiction? And the context I add, okay, so like, first of all, I actually consume a ton of nonfiction every single day, but it's articles. It's like things I'm reading on the internet. Like I read tons, like every single day, like I post on LinkedIn a lot and people are often like, oh, like what inspired you? Like, how do you find the things to write about? And the truth is I just do what I normally do, which is every day, just like read obsessively about everything. And I just sit down. I'm like, what I think was interesting, just write it out. And it doesn't take that long because I've really like read a bunch of stuff. Um, but for long form where there's like a little bit more of an investment, I actually prefer more of an escape where I think that's where I guess the point in stress, some little bit of emotional relief. That's like, not as like, here's like the 10 lessons to learn life. Like the 10 lesson, l lessons on like how to do life. I'll like read that during the day, like on my commute, like in, you know, safari, but I won't like read an actual book about it. Um, but yeah, no, I think there are like certain philosophical tenets that like once I read them, they really stick with me, right? Like like existentialism. I'll be like, oh, like that's something I'm gonna remember. Yeah. Got it. Anything else that sticks out from like the last 12 months? 
I would say the last 12 months, but again, like sometimes you learn something that's very formative. I remember too learning like what does it mean to be free? I mentioned earlier that it's a personal mission of mine to try and feel free. And there's like two different types of freedom. In fact, one of the big reasons why liberals and conservatives in this country argue so much is because they optimize both for freedom, but for different types of freedom. The first type of freedom is freedom from interference. That is freedom from other people getting in my way and telling me what to do. The second type of freedom is freedom to really be myself. And they're different. So here's an example. This is the classic example. It's from a thinker named Isaiah Berlin, I believe, if my memory serves me right. And the example he always gives is, say like your friend is going out to buy drugs because he or she, they're addicted to crack. <laughs> and it's like one in the morning and they're going out to get more crack and you're standing there and you have the keys to their car that they're going to go drive to meet their crack dealer. Do you give them the keys or not? And your friend's like, give me the keys. Well, on the one hand, like I should give them the keys because I'm restricting their freedom from interference if I'm not giving them their keys. I'm interfering in their life. He's like, give me the keys. I'm like, no, I'm going to willingly hold these keys from you. I am like actually interfering with your life. Mm -hmm. But the second perspective is, oh, I'm actually helping you be more free because when you are addicted to crack cocaine, are you really free? Are you your best self? Are you making the choices that you think you really want to be making? Mm -hmm. Or are you trapped in a desire that's not really representative of what you really want? In which case, if I can do anything to help you overcome that addiction, that's actually going to be what helps you become freer, even if it requires interference. And I've thought about that concept a lot. And I think when I was growing up, I subscribed a lot to that second school of freedom. Like actually freedom is where people or you are trying to help others be freer, even if it requires more interference from you. And as I've gotten older, I've actually changed my mind and subscribed much more to the former. Because if, yes, freedom yeah. from interference is the truer form. Because in order for someone to believe that their interference is worth it and they're helping you reach a truer state of freedom, a more truer form of yourself, they have to have some judgment of what they think is right and good for you. And as gotten older, I think, yeah, like actually nobody knows what they're doing. And therefore, most judgments and assumptions about your life are probably wrong, in which case the best thing to do is to trust yourself. And the freedom from interference actually is the more valuable form of freedom. That's always been a tenet that's always been in my mind. It's like, how do you feel free and how do you try and help others too? Got it. I love that. I, you know, what's interesting, I think younger, like, you know, in my 20s or whatever, it's like, no, you know, equality is the main thing. And then you realize, though, like equality and freedom are diametrically opposed. And the main thing to be optimizing for is actually freedom. Yeah, they are different, right? Because if you assume that we come into the world naturally, necessarily not equal, Anything you do to try and make that more equal might involve interference. And that doesn't mean it's bad, but again, it depends on your definition of freedom. Like how is, is that worth it and such? Yep. All right. So a couple more things from my side here. It's, it's not often I get to talk to the Asian founder. So how has it been being an Asian founder? Do you just feel like it's, it's like, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> well, I, I think, I mean, even that thing you said, right? I feel sad when I hear that because they're historically haven't been as many Asian founders. Mm -hmm. When I used to work in the corporate world, when I used to work at Blackstone or McKinsey, what I recall distinctly is the analysts, we were all, many of us were Asian. The middle managers, engagement managers was the term we called it at McKinsey. Like we were Asian as well. But like I did not see many East Asian partners. And 
was like, well, that sucks. There is that certain like model minority myth, right? Like I think, you know, it's changing, but like in the olden days, it's like, oh, like Asian Americans, especially East Asian Americans, like, oh, we're like really good at like doing things, but we're like not good at like figuring out what to do and leading and like trying new things. And like, why did that stereotype develop in the first place? Well, yeah, because like our parents are all immigrants. Like they came over to this country, many of them actually very highly educated and qualified, not having the privilege to necessarily come into like white collar halls of power and to start telling people what to do. They had to do what other people told them. And guess what? They were good at it. And that's sort of what perpetuated the myth. But that's why like we had generations where like we didn't see people necessarily being as aggressive that same way. And like, yeah, sure, maybe there's like a cultural POV in terms of what worked in these Asian countries is different than what works here, like these learned behaviors, right? Now, I think we're finally beginning to see a generation of founders and creators and business leaders who are East Asian, right? Like our generation, the younger generation, because we are finally beginning to reach places of more abundance mindsets and doing riskier things. Like I am beginning to see like a lot of younger generations, a lot of East Asian Americans who are just like, yeah, like, of course I'm going to try this thing. And in some ways, I hope that by like us sharing our journey, that we can inspire that next generation to be like, okay, cool. Like they followed this path and, you know, maybe it was good, maybe it was bad. Is that the path that I want to follow? You know, one thing I hope to to see more of, because I don't know if you've seen this, but I, you know, I was telling Brad this earlier. It, it's when you look at like, you know, if, if let's say we're both uh, Mexican, for example, right? Sure. So someone comes after you, like, you're going to help me, right? Same thing, like if we're both black or whatever. But like Asians, there's like this weird crabs in a buckman, crabs in a bucket mentality where sometimes we're just trying to like pull each other back into the bucket. I just like would like to see Asian founders support each other more. And I don't know if that's what you see. Yeah, I think I reminded of this comment I saw recently from someone. I, I think I think he was he or she was Asian. I don't quite remember. But they were like, hey, like you talk a lot about being like an Asian American founder. Like, I, don't do that. It hurts you. And I was like, well, if I'm being honest, I don't talk about being Asian American to hurt or help the business. Right. Like, it's not because I'm, oh, it's going to like optimally help care at 50x times. I talk about it because it goes back to my point on freedom. I just want to be able to say the things and do the things that I think are true to myself. And like, I am Asian American. Yeah. <laughs> like, I wake up every morning and I see it in the mirror it is an empirical fact of who I am. Yeah. And so I will share my experience having lived that. I'm not going to like necessarily say that, you know, makes, I'm, I'm not trying to be prescriptive to others. I'm trying to just be reflective of my own experience. And I think to your point, I think a lot of, times you mentioned like a craps in a bucket mentality right mm -hmm. i believe that whenever someone is attacking you it is always because of some insecurity they hold themselves mm -hmm. whenever somebody is angry at you or resentful or calls you out they're not really mad at you they're really mad or scared or sad about something themselves and i think even that that you described it is but a symptom of yeah, as Asian Americans, like we have gone through these stereotypes of, yeah, we suck at leading and founding. We're just good at doing stuff. And all of us have had different reactions, how we internalize it and deal with it. And sometimes it comes out in ways 
where, you know, everyone has their own ways of doing it. And sometimes it's not as productive. And I just try and recognize they too are coming from a place of hurt. Yep. I think the best thing we can do for, for as Asian founders or any Asian founders really, or any founders really, is just to do a really good job and set the example. See, I like that, but it's also hard because then it puts on the classic amount of pressure where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, okay. So if you're an Asian American, you have to do a good job. Mm-hmm. But it's like, well, I'd love to get to a world where I'm Asian American and I'm not saying we will, yeah. but maybe I'm not, but I can still be valued the same way as someone who isn't, who just tries and fails. There's a, there's this classic description, they call it the glass cliff, I believe, where there's a saying where they'll bring in a minority CEO, like a woman CEO or like a minority CEO, and they'll usually bring one in right when the company's in crisis. Like something like the stock is falling off a cliff. They're going through like tons of issues. And that's when they bring them in. And of course, they like brought them in during a time of crisis. And a lot of times it still doesn't end up working out. And then like that person was brought in gets like all the hate. Like, Uh. yeah, because they were an XYZ. That's why. And it's like, (laughs) well, in a way, like they were brought in in the first place because things were so shitty. Maybe other people didn't want to take it on. And they're like. I'll take it on. And so there's sort of this like, you're right. Like, yeah, if we just do a good job. It'll speak for ourselves. But there's also this weird responsibility and burden to be like, oh, because I'm a minor- minority, like I have to do better. Yeah, I, I think it's 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 not even like, so I wasn't coming from a place of we have to do better. I, it's just like, hey, like to your point, work hard, you know, hopefully add some value to somebody yeah. and then set the example so we can keep the, the cycle going. Yeah, I no, I think you're right. I'm going to take it one step further and be like, just exist. Just try. Just be there. <laughs> just by doing the work and being a founder, a creator, an entrepreneur as a minority, well, you're, you're already helping. I mean, like, I, uh, so we had one of these, like, my, my mom put one of these, like, Asian family dinners together, like, yeah. a month ago or so. And then one of my, my rich uncles, like, he comes up, he's like, you know, Eric, uh, most human beings are just useless. You don't need that many Steve Jobs and Elon Damn. Musk. And then my other cousin, my cousin works for the IRS. He's like standing, he's like sitting there. He's like, yeah, you know, most of the people I work with are useless. I was like, damn. And so it's like, to your point, like these things all actually align. It's like, just work hard, exist, you know, and like let the chips fall where they may. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Like <laughs> to take a different tangent from your point, there will always be someone out there who thinks what you're doing is useless and you are useless. It doesn't matter how big you are and you can't let that stop you from just doing it anyways. And you never know. Yeah. All right. Well, Eric, this has been great. Is there anything else you like to add? Anything you like to leave the audience with? Yeah. Well, Eric, I just want to say it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for humoring me while I want to get to know you better too. I think your story is also really fascinating. Appreciate it. And uh, for those of you who want to learn more about myself or Carrot, you can find us in socials at TryCarrot on Instagram for the business or Eric T. Way, E-R-I-C-T-W-A-Y on socials for myself. So thanks so much for hosting, Eric. All right. Thanks, man. Yeah. Sweet. That was fun. You may have completed this level, but many more bosses await. If you're looking to level up in marketing or business, just go to singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up to get access to our individual and team training programs. That's singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up.